I don't think you have any notion of the true strengths and depths of the opposition to our work. There's a whole medical establishment, of course, baying to send Freud to the auto da fe. But that's as nothing compared to what happens when our ideas begin to trickle through in whatever garbled form they're relayed to the public. The denials, the frenzy, the incoherent rage. All right. Hello and good morning or afternoon. Good morning, everybody. This is Jason McCoy alongside Nelson Bollier. And we are the cast of Put Them on, on the Couch. couch. Yes, all right. No, 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 no. Hold your applause, please. Hold your applause. Uh, inaugural episode, buddy. What do you yeah, think, man? Yeah, Dangerous Method, episode one. Very I'm... dangerous. Very dangerous. Two guys in a garage. Yeah, two, right? two dangerous people. Well, Nelson, um, what we just heard was a clip from a movie about 12 years old now called A Dangerous Method. There was some dialogue there. One of the scenes in a coffee shop in Vienna, Austria, between Sigmund Freud and his protege, Carl Jung. I think it can only mean one thing, and I think it's uh, it's time to analyze our first test subject. All uh, right, yeah. We're doing some Sigmund Freud today. Uh, so just a little bit of background. Um, Freud was born in Freiburg in modern-day Czech Republic, the first of eight children. Uh, Freud's father had two children from a previous marriage, and his marriage to Freud's mother was his third. She was 20 years younger than he was. Uh, at three Ooh. years old, Freud awesome. moved from Freiburg to Vienna, Austria. Uh, he graduated from secondary school at 17 years old with honors, and at that time, he actually spoke eight languages proficiently. Overachiever. After that, he enrolled at the University of Vienna. He studied zoology under a Darwinist professor, where he studied uh, comparing the brains of vertebrates, including humans, to the brains of invertebrates. Uh, he graduated in 1881, doing work that would actually later lead to the discovery of the neuron. Now, despite success and promise as a neurologist, Freud continued running into discrimination, uh, largely because of his Jewish heritage. Now, it should be noted that Freud was a devout atheist, but this did not really matter in the context of late 19th century European anti-Semitism. In 1886, Freud left the hospital and entered private practice where he noticed that many of the patients he was treating had severe afflictions, such as paralysis, that appeared to have no physical basis. Freud began focusing on these types of afflictions, and the rest, as they say, is history. Freud became the father of psychoanalysis, and embarked on a career that changed medicine and, indeed, the world. And that part, most of us know. But the environment in which Freud began his revolutionary work needs some explanation. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, patients suffering from mental illness were generally, were generally believed to be suffering from physical ailments relating to the central nervous system. These patients were usually committed, either voluntarily or by their families, to prisons or asylums. Treatments at these places for things like depression would at first incorporate techniques such as baths or relaxation methods. But if these proved ineffective, and they usually did, patients would be subjected to surgical procedures such as lobotomy. Now, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine an age when we say, talk it out, on almost a daily basis, that before Dr. Freud, nobody had documented the positive effect that talk therapy had on patients. Of course, Freud himself never publicly submitted himself to his own method, but I think it'd be a worthy exercise to try and examine the father of talk therapy and psychoanalysis from a historical and a psychological perspective. Like all of us, 
Freud was flawed, complex, vulnerable, and susceptible to the same failures he helped others to identify and deal with. So, Professor McCoy, let's stretch out and let's put Dr. Freud on the couch. All right. So let's talk a little bit about those flaws. Let's start there. Uh, you know, we know him as the father of psychoanalysis, but we don't know Sigmund Freud. Who was Sigmund Freud? Sigmund Freud was a petty, nervous, <laughs> and I dare say thankless, flawed human being. Sounds like a lot of great men. <laughs> yeah, he uh, definitely was a nervous child, a jealous boyfriend of his uh, girlfriend before they were married, Martha Freud. Uh, letters tell us that he didn't want her going ice skating because he feared that she would have to hold another man's hand as she was glided, she a bad skater as she glided across the. Did uh, she yeah, get worse depending yeah, on he, he the good-looking men on the ice? Clearly, didn't have a lot of confidence <laughs> in her ice skating abilities. Uh, he was also concerned uh, when he lived apart from his girlfriend. Uh, he met her in Vienna, Austria, but she and her family moved to Hamburg, Germany, and for four years they were apart. So they just wrote letters to one another. She was telling Freud that she was really into the arts, and he was very concerned that she was going to meet one of those guys that could compose music. And he said, look, I'm just a lowly scientist. I don't, I don't have any of those tools that will help me, like, get a woman and keep her like these artists. They can compose <laughs> music. Yeah, because today that's what we all worry about yeah, is a musician. Asp everyone aspires in. to become a musician that's right. today. In fact, I think, you know, as educators, we both know that that's probably the number one course that students ask for when they come to college, isn't it, is music or art. I'm just hoping my daughter ends up with a football player. I'm always yeah. worried about those band guys. Yeah. Well, so, and also a little petty and a little thankless. Uh, you know, he, he spent some time working with a very established uh, scientist named Brewer. Brewer is actually the person that introduced Freud to talk therapy. Brewer and Freud corresponded about one of Brewer's patients, the famous Anna O. She was a, you know, a patient around. Is that her real name? Yeah, no, no. Her name was uh, Megan Higglebaum or something like that. Now, it's seriously something that I can't remember. Look it up. She, excuse me, I had a little brain fart there. She was a hysterical patient. She had. I believe witnessed her mother or father die. She had some trouble with anxiety. She came to Brewer and he began using hypnosis to treat her. And she began telling stories under hypnosis. And eventually she said that she was cured, that she was doing better. And she thanked Brewer. And Brewer corresponded with Freud again through the mail. They were writing letters back and forth. And Freud got the idea from which he would adopt talk therapy from Brewer. He didn't care so much about the hypnosis part, but he thought, hey, I like the, um, the idea of just talking to patients and trying to tap into whatever is going on inside their mind. Um, Brewer not only inspired Freud's talk therapy, Brewer co-wrote uh, Freud's first book with him. And Freud never really thanked Brewer. In fact, he did the opposite. Uh, when he started to become a little more famous, he 
uh, wrote all these disparaging things and said all these disparaging things in the public about Brewer. Brewer had given friendship, mentorship, and um, all he could do was disparage Brewer from that point forward. Well, that's what they say. Academics, it's uh, it's dog eat dog. And I guess it hasn't changed much. Um, no, well, you know, so I guess they were getting big raises. They were competing for big raises. Big dollars? Yeah, big dollars. So, uh, you know, let's talk real quick about this idea of Freud's, that he was, he was destined for greatness. I remember a story from his childhood. He was born with, uh, I think they call it a call, uh, or some sort of membrane uh, still around his head and in very superstitious, uh, you know, 1850s, uh, Freiburg, you know, in that time period, uh, it was seen as a sign of prominence or a great distinction, uh, the mark of a great being. Yeah, that's, if, that's if one way to interpret um, genetic and/or congenital abnormalities. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Because I mean, everyone knows if your child's born with a big head or water on the brain, then they're destined to start them, right? So, was that something that he got from his parents? Was there a, a push from a young age to excel? Uh, was that placed on him, especially as the oldest child? I mean, I don't know if you want to get into birth order theory or anything, but was that placed on him as a young man? Well, you know, it's okay to talk about birth order theory. Um, the great Frank Selloway, in his book, Born... Uh, yeah, I just had another brain fart. In Frank Selloway's book on birth order, I can't remember the title, he argues that most of our firstborns are the most... Excuse me, I did it again. <laughs> He says that our firstborns typically are most conservative, and then the latterborns are typically more heretical. Okay. Heretical. Um, that the firstborns don't really like taking a lot of risks. So birth order theory would actually predict the opposite. Freud should have sort of stayed with mainstream medicine and never really ventured into the psychic so I guess, unconscious. I right? guess like uh, like a lot of Freud's theories, not everything falls in line. doesn't always work right. the way it's supposed to. I think another way you could think about Freud's sort of um, motivation for becoming distinguished um, would be that he grew up in Vienna, Austria, at a time where intellectualism was not only rampant, but it was focused very sharply in the hospital there, specifically the Vienna um, um, General Hospital. Right. Some of the greatest thinkers, greatest pioneers in surgery and, by the way, medical uh, um, technologies at the time, like the, the, the glove that people wear, the surgical gloves, the, I mean, you name it. The idea of hand washing right, um, right. inside the hospital came from some of these great um, pioneers in medicine. So Freud knew that if he was going to make it, specifically in Vienna, he was going to have to do a lot more than the average person. Well, I think it's important, too, to note the era of intellectualism, which you just touched on. I mean, this is also the age of Darwinism. This is the age of Nietzsche. This is a time period in European history where, you know, monarchies after 1848 are really on the decline. Liberalism, um, the individual, these things are all being celebrated. Religion is being questioned. And into that environment, you have this young, energetic, very intelligent young man uh, who really wants to make that name for himself. Um, and, he, and he starts in such an interesting place because, you know, we get to talk therapy and everything. But I think every student who comes to Freud uh, in their 10th grade psychology class sort of comes at it with the same question. And I think that's basically what in the hell is this? Um, 
So his first attempt at sort of codifying what he sees uh, with, you know, some of these maladies, some of these afflictions, uh, uh, talking about, uh, you know, the unconscious or the subconscious, his first attempt is the belief that all hysterias, he writes a paper where he talks about all hysterias, uh, being born in a child sex abuse uh, issue. And I think he's like really excited. He's, I've done it. My, my great theory. And from one end of Vienna, from one end of Europe, really, throughout the medical community, this is ridiculed, scorned, and kind of just scoffed at. Uh, to the point, one year later, he's he's sort of backtracking and he's stumbling and bringing into, um, you know, the the narrative, the medical establishment, this new idea of psychosexual development uh, stages of development and psychosexual analysis. So I want to talk a little bit about that because I'll just be that tenth grader. This stuff is weird. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Jason, Jason, Jason. So we, we left off. We were just getting into, I think, the meat and potatoes of what we all know about Freud. Um, you know, we might know a little bit of the history, but we certainly know the, the language, the Oedipal complex, all this good stuff. Uh, Freud was really focused on human sexuality um, and, you know, sexuality in general as a function of development um, and a source of some of our developmental delays, our hysterias, our problems. I just kind of still think as a layperson, it's a little bizarre. Where does this seeming obsession with sex come from? I mean, I think in some ways Freud was, like most teenagers today, interested in cavorting with the girl in the classroom next to him, but he didn't have the esteem. Like I said, he was a nervous Young man, I don't know that he was confident enough as a kid. When he started creating his theory, his psychodynamic theory, sex became a part of it, but it wasn't really the centerpiece at first. Again, the centerpiece at first was just the unconscious. And over time, he had to explain what was fueling the unconscious, right? Because he couldn't say biology by itself was fueling the unconscious, right? He he had long since abandoned his um, medical training of neurology. He was looking for something, again, different, something exceptional, something that would put him on the map. As he said, um, something would put him up there with Copernicus and Galileo and Darwin before him. Sex, death, along with aggression, were sort of the, the three-headed monster that Freud argued kind of fueled this unconscious. So where these feelings or these desires were originating uh, was death instinct, our life instinct, which he attributed to sex, and um, the other instinct, I think, had something to do with anxiety or neurosis. I, th I think it's really interesting to place all of these things in this theory and context. I mean, certainly, if you want to make a name for yourself, um, talking about sex openly in any era, uh, but particularly in this one, I mean, we're just coming out of the Victorian era as we enter the early 1900s from the end of the First World War and the first real sexual revolution of the 1920s with the flappers and the feminist movement and all of these things. And so here you have a Jewish doctor from Vienna coming along and being like, look, ABC, baby, it's all about 
sex. And uh, I'm just wondering in terms of the person on the couch right now, Dr. Freud, was this theory uh, maybe a way to sort of explain some of his own inadequacies or some of his own failings or vulnerabilities? Well, I mean, we'd be theorizing if we went there, so why So let's not? go there. Yeah, let's go there. <laughs> I mean, again, I think it's possible that a man who marries essentially the first person he ever felt this sort of consummate love towards, Martha, uh, admittedly fell in love with her at first sight when she was eating an apple. It's possible that he was so enamored with her that he, you know, he wanted to impress her. He wanted to do well. Um, he wasn't very learned when it came to the ways of romance and relationships. Again, we we sort of are suspicious of that whenever we s read these letters uh, and he's espousing all these sort of jealous quips about don't go ice skating and don't hang out with those musician types, right? Um, we also know that he, you know, called her princess. We know that. He um, lived in the same building as he worked. I don't think that was an accident. I mean, Freud was relatively wealthy. He could have had an office separate from his house, but something tells me that he wanted to keep an eye on Martha or, and or Martha wanted to keep an eye on him. I mean, he worked basically 18 hours a day. I'm not sure he could have uh, been having that much sex, at least not working 18 hours a day. I know he did have six kids, right, in eight years, but um, I think he spent more time working and smoking cigars after that. So I don't know. Maybe it was a reaction formation, to use his own defense terminology, right? Maybe he was um, so singularly, not singularly, but so focused on sex um, to the point where he basically ran off many of his great protégés, Eric Erickson, Alfred Adler, Carl, Carl Young. Young, yep. Um, they were trying to point out, hey, maybe it's not all about sex, and he just wouldn't listen to them, right? He was he was fixated on this, uh, no pun intended. So sort of like projecting, hey, this is, I, I understand my own shortcomings In, through right, sexuality. Right, yeah. So maybe he was he was becoming more uh, fixated on sex as an academic endeavor, as a, as a way of explaining the human condition in general, um, as a way of sort of maybe compensating? Right today we wouldn't do that. Today we would just go out and buy a big truck with big tires, <laughs> right? Or maybe stockpile weapons. Uh, sure. No offense. No offense to anyone who stockpiles weapons. Um, Although we, again, you know, an academic, we said his dog eat dog. Didn't he sort of do the equivalent of that and sort of say, "And look, here I am, bitches." Um, yeah. But again, I mean, we 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 psychoanalyze Freud at our own sort of peril. Um, Freud was once asked, you know, he was. He was very quick to point out that one of his patients or one of his critics or one of his friends or family members had a fixation, right? He'd say, oh, you know, that's an oral fixation. That's an anal fixation. But when Freud, it was pointed out to Freud, hey, man, do you have an oral fixation? I mean, you seem to smoke a lot of cigars. <laughs> Freud said, um, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. That was his way of saying, you can't criticize me. You can't apply psychoanalysis or psychodynamic theory, as it were, to explain my behavior, because sometimes it's it's not about that. But it sort of seems like it's you know heads I win, tails you lose. Yeah, it, it, it yeah, sort of with seems everything, like, right? And so and I want to talk a little bit about the vagueness of some of of his theories and whether or not that correlates to his his narcissism and his you know you've talked about him being a very thin skinned and petty type of guy. Um, 
how do you prove or how do you disprove Freud? I mean, it, it's so well, that's, vague. that's sort of the vice and the virtue of Freud's um, legacy, I think. Um, Freud's theory, his psychodynamic theory of the unconscious and that being possibly the hinge from which we open all puzzles or solve all the puzzles is tough to test, right? Like Freud's concepts, ideas, hypotheses, I should call it, I call them, were not very testable. Fixation as a teenager um, being the result of some kind of unresolved childhood conflict during one of those stages of development he talked about, let's just say the oral stage, the problem was he wasn't very specific, right? He wasn't, right. He wasn't making specific testable predictions. He was doing what is equivalent to playing darts with someone who throws the dart at the board and then they run over and put a bullseye around where the dart lands yeah, as opposed much. to <laughs> saying, okay, here's the bullseye. We're going to throw the darts at the same. So, But that, that also goes to the treatment because the treatments or the prescriptions weren't prescriptions at all. I think it seemed to me, and again, this is a layperson's perspective, but it seems to me the idea is just the simple understanding of where these shortcomings come from. And in Freud's office, it was always about sex, um, was liberating and healthful. But there's nothing beyond that. There's no, hey, this is how you fix A, this is how you fix B. It, it just makes people sort of understand where they are, and it doesn't do anything to advance them to where they might want to be if they're seeking the help of a physician. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's always been a conundrum for me because um, we know that Freud spent – Again, about 18 hours a day working. I'm assuming he spent eight to ten of those hours probably listening to, you know, uh, his patients talking on the couch. Um, most of his patients, I dare say 95 to 99 percent of them, were female. I imagine they were relatively wealthy because they could afford therapy. Um, Freud, you have to remember, believed that therapy was for life. So these women would enter a commitment with him essentially for life, whether they knew it or not. Um, he believed that the pursuit of becoming a better human being was a lifelong endeavor and that his psychoanalysis really only worked if you committed to it for, you know, for a long period of time. Would spend all this time with these potentially beautiful kind of damsels in distress, women who, you know, admittedly were anxious. He called them neurotic or even hysterical sometimes. But they, if you think about um, anybody today with a problem, think about something as simple as a marital issue or problems with communication. Maybe some of them had problems with sex. Um, yeah, he gave them an outlet to speak. Sometimes it's been documented that they even made passes at him, but there's no evidence that he ever sort of took any of them up on it. In fact, some people argue that the reason he put them on the couch was to kind of disarm them. He didn't want to make eye contact with them. Maybe he was concerned about being seduced. He also believed that his therapy was of such importance and such power that he shouldn't be sitting face-to-face -face with someone. He wanted to kind of at least symbolically represent that he was the professional, he was the therapist, he's the person with the cure, and that they're merely the patient. So he wanted to kind of keep uh, them in their place. That, that was also how he treated his, uh, his colleagues. Sure, exactly. Uh, so... Real quick, I mean, again, we go back to that Victorian era. You can imagine a lot of people um, repressed. Uh, I remember a, a great story about a woman in Britain 
and uh, she was nervous about her wedding night, so her mother gave her the same advice that her mother had given her and her grandmother had given her mother, and uh, it was it was pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, lie back and think of the empire, dear. Uh, th- wow. This is your duty. And, wow, that's interesting. And so, you know, you can see all these women, and, you know, obviously we're talking about Victorian Britain in that case, but this was all over Europe, uh, the modesty, um, the, the reserved nature of things. You know, you could certainly see how uh, many of these women might open up about their sexuality or their sexual experience, their longing. And this, I think, could just reinforce, you know, what Freud already believed. Um, so it's an environment where there's a lot of ammunition, a lot of support for this new uh, revolutionary type of idea that really has sort of fallen out of favor now, hasn't it? It's not something that's practiced in the psychosexual Freudian model. Do, do people still do this? Well, it's not something that's practiced in mainstream psychotherapy anymore because, you know, as far back as the 1960s, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the most common therapies today and one of the most uh, reputable therapies today across psychology and psychiatry, uh, sort of supplanted psychoanalysis because it was seen as being not only more efficacious, but it was more efficient in that patients would come in, uh, the, the therapist would help them identify specific problems, and then right. all the work would be towards rectifying that particular problem. So right. unlike, We don't have to go all the way back to right, oral stage right. to and, figure this out. Yeah, and there's no need for symbolism, there's no need gotcha. for interpretation, dream analysis. And honestly, no need for coming in for life. The idea was, here's how you'll know that my therapy works. Uh, the cognitive behaviorist said, you'll know because you won't be in here forever. Was there still a need for Coke? I'm glad you was there still that. A, glad you was there, everybody knows two things about Freud and its psychosexual analysis. And, uh, you know, a, a good line or two, a good bump in the morning, um, never a bad thing in, in the Freudian world. I'm glad you mentioned that. Not only did Freud like cocaine, not only did he um, use cocaine, not only did he prescribe it to his patients, but uh, he was so excited about it that he wrote about it the first time he used it uh, in a letter to, as he called Martha, his princess, um, Woe to you, my princess, when I come. I will kiss you quite red and feed you till you are plump. And if you are forward, you shall see who is the stronger, a gentle little girl who doesn't eat enough or a big, strong body, wrote Sigmund Freud. It sounds a big, like... wild man who has cocaine in his body. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of people I know who have done copious amounts of cocaine um all right he finished uh, by the way saying <laughs> here i am making silly confessions to you my sweet darling and really without any reason whatsoever unless it's the cocaine that makes me talk so much by that's, the way that's the, hot the two, that's hot was it the two were married a year later okay yeah. well you know it's kind of funny because can't you use cognitive behavioral th- therapy for addiction I mean, so yeah, I would make the case that in most types of addiction, cognitive behavior therapy, which is essentially the go-to, a talk therapy 2.0. Yeah, it is the go-to, along with some chemical interventions. Sometimes we do use chemicals, psycho 
or pharmaceuticals to sort of help with the real serious addictions like, you know, heroin or um, meth, methamphetamines. But, yeah, generally speaking, cognitive behavior therapy works pretty well. Freud, by the way, wrote about cocaine. He poured over the literature when he was learning about it and, and wrote a manual on cocaine called... <laughs> yep, I did it a third time. You, uh, you've been eating like a lot of brain, a lot of brain fiber, yeah. but it was called Uber cocaine, Uber on, cocaine on cocaine. Okay. Something like that. Right. I don't know. Anyway, look it up on your Google machine, ladies and gentlemen, but he, yeah, but be careful. Like don't look, yeah. don't look it up at work. No, no, no. Um, but he did find that cocaine was kind of good about treating depression and anxiety and alcoholism and nicotine addiction and probably for about two hours yeah, on all a clip <laughs> kind of the cbd of you know our modern era sure it's just attributed yeah. to um treating anything and everything successfully but oddly the thing that cocaine probably did the best job of Freud didn't really um explore that avenue uh, you know what that was uh i'll go ahead and guess uh sinus Sinuses. Yeah, anesthesia. Oh, anesthesia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. A pain relief, right? So dentists were sure. using it. Surgeons were using it. It was a pretty good topical anesthetic. Freud didn't talk about that. In fact, had he explored that part of uh, cocaine's functionality, perhaps he would have gone in that direction, uh, as, as many people did during his time. Sure. But again, he wasn't really interested in the medical application. He wasn't interested in... Um, going that same route that he had taken in med school. He wanted something different, something new. Yeah. So for him, cocaine was just a way of treating some of the psychological maladies. And again, Freud used cocaine. He, you know, he, he advocated the use of it. Um, he wrote about it. He was pretty much in love with it, but he managed to avoid um, cocaine addiction, uh, only to die from throat cancer. Yeah, the man loved yeah. a good cigar. From smoking 20 cigars a day. How does him, I mean, it takes me an hour to smoke a cigar. How now, does anybody have that kind of time? Now, interestingly, you know, he was in so much pain. He lived with throat cancer for what, a decade or yeah, more? Yeah, about 16 years. Yeah. But at the end of his life, around 1938, when he moved from Vienna, escaped Nazi Germany and went to London, he, uh, he asked one of his best friends at the time, who was a physician, who was interested in biology and pharmaceuticals to kill him. His friend uh, gave him two lethal doses of morphine. Was that legal? In the, I mean, was that type of physician-assisted suicide, was that legal? Hey, that's that's uh, fodder for another episode. Maybe we'll put Dr. Kudborkian on the couch. In a, that would be in fun. A, in or a death. Episode. Death itself. Or death, death itself. Death itself. Yeah. So look, you know, Freud dies in 39, laughing. I was reading something about uh, Freud. They were when the Nazis came to power, they were obsessed with burning books. Uh, and Freud's was, you know, as a prominent Jewish psychologist, psychiatrist, the father of uh, modern psychotherapy. Right. You know, that, I mean, that was a book they really wanted to burn. And uh, he remarked to a friend in a letter, he said, man, look at this progress. Uh, 50 years ago, they'd want to burn me. And now they're just after my books. Oh, Freud. Um, Always interested so <laughs> in the self, right? You alluded Absolutely. earlier to narcissism. I think that's... Uh, something that we, we need to touch on before. Well, I was uh, going to ask you, as we wrap up, I was going to ask you for the diagnosis. I think it's our first patient. We really have to have a, a diagnosis. So if you're diagnosing Sigmund Freud all these years later, uh, give it to me straight. Uh, what's wrong with this guy? I'm going to give him a touch of 
narcissistic personality disorder. Okay. And I hesitate to use the term disorder. As I tell students, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with narcissism per se. I mean, the love of self, the desire to enrapture yourself and others with the special and unique importance of yourself. Oh, the old natural yeah, opiate. Nothing wrong with you that are right. per se. I love it. But yeah, if we we're going to give him disorder, I guess that would be the thing. Especially because, you know, personality disorders are so very difficult to treat. They're built right into the fabric of who you are, right? They're, they're indistinguishable from, from who you are. So changing yourself is what it would take in order to change your personality, right? It's almost like how do you separate ingredients in a recipe after the thing has baked in the oven, right? Right. So once you're born and your brain is sort of set, how could you undo that? So, so it's pretty tough. It's it's going to be hard to to treat someone with a personality disorder. That that clearly seems to be the case with Freud. He was intransigent. He would not change. I mean, again, going back to his protégés, Jung, Adler, Erickson, they remarked that, Freud was very overly, gen he, he overly generalized his ideas about sex and the degree to which they could explain human behavior or treat, you know, maladaptations. So, yeah, I mean. He encouraged psychotherapy um, for anybody who was willing. Do you think he was the type of person who would have subjected himself to any sort of mental health uh, therapy? Or did he just sort of think of himself as... I got this. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm above this. No, he definitely thought of himself as above it. I don't know if he really thought that or if that, again, was part of his reaction formation, his his overcompensation. But at least his publicly, the publicly presenting self, the forward-facing Freud, was that, yeah, he, he likened himself to one of the most important intellectual giants of all time. He believed that psychoanalysis was right up there. It should be put right up there on the mantle with, you know, Darwin's theory of evolution and Copernicus's view of the universe, Galileo. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you look throughout history, you know, bringing in a broader historical context, I think you'd find most people disordered in some way. And what I mean by that is, so like me, I, I have attention deficit disorder. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have attention deficit What's disorder. What's your second? You have what? What's that? Who? I, I, what were we talking about? Something about. Oh, yeah. No, I have attention deficit disorder. I'm sorry. I saw a mouse. Uh, <laughs> we're in your garage. So, no, I, I saw, um, I have an attention deficit disorder, and, you know, it was something when I was a child that I was like, oh, man, I want to get rid of this. You know, I was on Ritalin when I was a kid, um, you know, went to doctors, sure. all that stuff. Uh, if I could get rid of that today, it would be very difficult because no, it'll... No. all you need is cocaine. You can replace... Well, whatever problem you have with cocaine. Well, of course. Guess, no, no. I, that's I mean, illegal. We, I'm already, gentlemen, I'm already doing that. It would be CBD oil today, I think, is what I hear. Which, I mean, I don't think it's an either-or yeah. proposition, but uh, I think if you would you know, try to replace all the things that make you you, you would lose the ability to create psychoanalysis. You would lose the ability, and we're definitely putting Darwin on the couch because that man has some issues. I mean, I don't know if we can analyze just, uh, you know, hair choices or style choices, but he's got a lot to work with. Marx, too. We'll have to put him up there, yeah, Nietzsche. Definitely. But um, you can't be who you are, I think, a lot of these great men, if you don't also embrace that part of you that is imperfect um, and disordered, if you want to use that word. Uh, yeah, and where one man's confidence ends, perhaps another man's self-absorption, um, 
narcissism begins. Yep. I mean, I guess you could make the case that, you know, to be great, you do need confidence. Um, but you're not going to be the greatest without probably a level of narcissism. Right. Um, so well, when, in terms of greatness, I guess you might say that humility uh, is a, a barrier to greatness. I definitely think it could or be. Or would Freud say that? Yeah, I think it definitely could be. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to our inaugural cast. And uh, we hope that in the near future we can come back. And we'll put something on next week. What do you think? Who's uh, ready? Who's ready for the couch? Uh, we'll let you know very soon. Tiger needs to be on the couch. Tiger Woods. <laughs> <laughs>